Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How's it going, 11 a.m.? So real quick, uh, two things, and I'll dive into part five. Don't come to church next week. It's the first one. This is one of the few times you're going to hear me say this. Next weekend is Memorial Day. Um, last weekend I said Labor Day. In case you were confused, you probably figured it out. But Memorial Day, and so uh, we want to honor those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. But there's another thing we do on these, this weekend. We call it Sabbath Sunday, and it's a huge way for us to honor all of our bridge builders who serve week in and week out and sacrifice so much for the sake of investing in people. And so... I think we could maybe even give them a little bit more than that. So let's celebrate every one of our bridge builders as a church. So next week, we want to honor them. And then the week after that first weekend, first Sunday in June, uh, we start a brand new series called Mastermind. If you master your thoughts, you begin to change the trajectory of your life. And so cannot wait for that. And I just want to encourage you, I say this all the time, new series, really every week, but a new series is a great time to invite somebody Um, There's two things it does. Um, You need it for your own faith if you're a follower of Jesus. The worst thing you can do is stagnate, not not kind of invest in anybody outside of you or who doesn't believe what you believe um, or maybe is looking for a place to grow in their faith because when you do, you see your faith through a different perspective. It just happens. The second thing is, and I say this all the time, you have no idea what hangs in the balance of 30 seconds of courage and a singular invite, but we get to hear those stories every single week. And so this series is going to be incredibly relevant. First week in June, uh, be back together. Make sure you bring somebody with you, okay, for Mastermind. So with that, we are ending our series called um, Hope in the Dark. My name is Bryant Lee Pastor, if I didn't say that already. Um, And I want to kind of wrap this up, and there's a line at the very end of uh, my Easter message that nobody remembers, because you don't remember um, anything past the 30 minutes after you leave here, I think generally, Um, and so I just expect that, and lower the expectations makes me feel better. But there was a line um, in a verse at the end of that message that I wanted to circle back around, um, and I'm going to get to in a few minutes to end this series out. So before I get there, though, a little word association. You guys have gotten so much better. Um, it giving me feedback of engaging, so it's amazing. So just keep that up. You can um, talk back in church. Um, I'm good with that. All right, thank you. So quick word association. First thing that comes to your mind um, when I yell these things out, uh, drinks. All right, just, just remember you're in church, and nobody's, you're not fooling anybody with the communion. Like, I heard a lot of, like... I, I heard a variety of drinks just now. So, um, all right, drink, okay, uh, welcome to Centerpoint. Um, all right, let me, let me move on to the next one. Um, hobbies, first thing that comes to mind. Gardening. Wow. What else? Okay. Woodworking. All right, I heard, I heard a ton of different things. You guys, this is a very diverse audience, from gardening to woodworking to whatever else I heard, flying planes. Um, all right, next one, uh, Buccaneers. 
All right. Super Bowl, Tom Brady were the only acceptable answers for that word association. Uh, Netflix. What do you watch on Netflix? Nobody's going to judge. Netflix and chill is not an appropriate answer in church. I'm just playing. Netflix, real quick. Ozark. Ozark, by the way, has won the day in both of our services so far, um, and I approve. Uh, any, any others? Real quick. Nice. All, so here's what's happening. All of you are terrified that you're going to get judged in church for what you watch on Netflix, and nobody will give me any answers, right? So I heard like two things. Um, let's see, I feel like I had one more. Uh, don't remember what it was. Okay, so here's, here's the point I was trying to get to, and nobody call out answers now. Because this is where it can get really awkward, more awkward than it's already been. Because I don't know where you're coming from, what your background is. What's the word association with Christian? All right, I said not to answer out loud. <laughs> but that, that is the right answer. It's the perfect Sunday school answer. Just it's Jesus is the answer to anything asked in church. But like, okay, let me ask it this way for the, the Sunday school student in the back who answered that. I don't know who that was. Um, <clears throat> what, what should word association be with it? Like, what, what should come to mind? What should we think about? And then, um, and I love that I'm still getting answers. Now I'm like at the rhetorical part. <laughs> but I love it. You, I've been trying so long and so hard to get you guys to engage. So I'm not gonna, you can do that all throughout this sermon. Just yell random stuff at me. But um, the other question for the group that maybe and you're listening via unfiltered radio, you're watching because you're afraid to, join in person, or you're, you're sitting here today, and you're still investigating, figuring out you're not a Jesus follower, that's a really great question for you. And you shouldn't answer it out loud, because I don't know what your answer would be. It could be four letters. It could be you've had a really difficult experience. But what should you, like, what should you think of, and what do you think of when you hear the term Christian? Here's the thing that almost never gets said, and maybe your context is different, but just talk to people outside and you'll recognize that the thing that is almost never said in word association with Christian is this word, fearless. Like a lot of times we're not, I mean, we're branded a lot of things. Generally, it's not fearless. People from the outside are not looking at us to go, okay, say what you want. People are crazy. I don't understand their habits and what they do with their money. And they've got some really weird rules. But those people are fearless. Generally, that doesn't get brought up. And yet, and you've heard me talk about this so many times, and this is going to lead where we're going to go today. If, I love history, and I love specifically the history of first century followers of Jesus who walked through darkness that, as we've said, many of us can't really comprehend. And I'm not saying your story is not legit and not dark, but it was dark. And there was so much uncertainty, and they didn't know what God was doing, and they hadn't heard from God lately, and there was a threat of persecution and death, and there was not a whole lot to cling to, and yet they continued to maintain faith. And first century followers of Jesus, people would look at them and go, they're odd. We don't understand what they do on the weekend. There's some really weird stuff about their belief systems that is just kind of crazy, but I'm just telling you, they don't fear loss. They seem to confront death, and they're not terrified of it. They're not even afraid of illness. They would go into villages and they would nurse people back to health while all the priests would leave. And they weren't even afraid of their own lives. They were so selfless. They were so giving. They were so confident. And here's the thing that is true about all of us. This is just human nature. When you're not afraid of loss, one of the attributes of that or one of the outflows of that is you're selfless. Because when you fear loss, what do you have to do? Self-preserve. You have to protect, you have to defend, you have to make sure you get yours, you have to make sure that you keep, that you take back, whatever it is. But when you don't really fear loss because of whom you follow, there's something in that that causes you to be selfless. And they were the most selfless people on the planet because they didn't really feel 
fear lost because of their resurrected Savior, and they were confident, but they weren't arrogant. There was like this humility about the first century followers of Jesus because they knew that their strength, their outlook was something outside of themselves and bigger than themselves. And I'm just telling you, I'm not making this up. You can look at it. People would kind of stand on the edges of their villages or their homes or these groups of Jesus followers who were starting churches and they would go, these people are crazy, but they are fearless and they are confident, but they're humble and they're selfless and they give up their lives. There is something about them that is awe-inspiring. Now, here's a reason I bring that up, because we know this, that, that Christian means Christ follower, right? It means Jesus follower. I just think this is important for us to remember, because I think a lot of the church globally, evangelicalism, have, has kind of forgotten this. Just so you know, Jesus was not fragile. Christianity is not fragile. His followers shouldn't be either. Man, man think... It's half-hearted, but I'll take it. Think of Peter, who, who Peter, man, at the end of his life, after abandoning and then coming back, is willing to be crucified in terms of maintaining faith and following Jesus. Paul, who suffers so much. We looked at this in week two. We're like, Paul, we're going to kill you. He's like, well, better for me to be with the Lord. All right, then we're going to arrest you and put you in a dungeon. He's like, that's fine. I'll write letters. They'll change Western civilization. Like, Paul seemed untouchable. There was something about these people. They had every reason in the world to walk through darkness and maintain their hope, maintain their faith, recognizing that there was nothing for them to be ridiculously afraid of, even when there were things to be afraid of. Because of who they followed, because of what they were called into, because of what God had already done. Here's one of the things I know about a lot of people who've kind of walked away from faith or they're struggling, and maybe this is you, is that for a lot of you, you haven't walked away or struggled necessarily because of theology or belief or because of apologetics. One of the reasons that you've walked away is because you've looked at us and you no longer trust that we believe what we say we believe. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? Do you know who you follow? Do you know what I did? Do you know what I anchored to history? And I understand it's dark. I understand there's a lot that's against you. And I understand you're walking through some stuff that is kind of unexplainable. But you serve a Savior that willingly went toward Jerusalem, knowing how it was going to end. And he went there anyway. And now he says to you, I want you to follow me. You have nothing to be afraid of, even when there is something to fear. And you have every reason to maintain hope, even when it gets dark. Even when you don't understand even when it's difficult. And so I love the author of Hebrews. We don't know if this was a guy, it was a girl. Theologians have argued about this. I have an opinion, but it doesn't matter. But the author of Hebrews, I'll just say he, might have been she, sits down and writes this letter to Hebrew Christians. And they were suffering during a time when there was so much to fear. And there was a lot of darkness. And for them, it was personal and it was it was kind of communal because they were living in a culture where it seemed like everybody was against them, by the way, because everybody actually was against them. Unlike what we think, they were really willing to kill them. They were trying to stamp out Christianity. They would call Christians atheists because they didn't understand them. They didn't have sacrifices or a temple or a priest. They're like, are you guys atheists? Like, no, 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 we're followers of Jesus. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And they dealt with marginalization, and they dealt with disease, they dealt with sickness, they dealt with trying to be a part of a movement that nobody understood, and they had no money, and they had no leverage, and they had no influence. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to this group, because despite all of that, they continue to maintain faith, 
And they were, I'm telling you, they were all inspiring. There was something about their movement in the first century. You should study it. It was almost irresistible when you got to know these people. It's like, how could we not at least investigate this? There is something about these dudes. There's something about these women. There's something different about this thing. And they have every reason to be against everybody and against culture, bail out on God because he hasn't come through for them lately. They just continue to give their lives away for the sake of other people. What's wrong with these people? But there was Hebrew Christians that started to ask the question, like, we would or we do, like, but is it worth maintaining hope through all of this? Is it worth it? Is it working? Like, is it worth it to continue to follow Jesus when Jesus hasn't done anything lately? Is it worth it to keep going when it seems like everybody's against you? Is it worth it to, to keep being faithful when it feels like all the rest of the world isn't being faithful? Is it worth it? And is it working is God doing anything through the midst of this? Is God still with us? Does God still have a plan? Is it, is it worth it? Is it working? And listen, just real quick, this is what is, is unimaginable to me. They had no idea what was ahead for them. They had no idea what was going to happen 2,000 years later. They had no idea that this little, little fledgling movement would begin to plant churches around the Mediterranean rim. And lo and behold, 2,000 years later, the church, love it, hate it, you can't ignore it, dominates the globe. A third of the world believes Jesus is connected to Messiah, that this message will go across every continent, in every language, in every culture, in every generation. In that moment, they had no idea. They're just looking at their little movement, and everybody's against them, and God hasn't answered any of their prayers. And they have no idea that 2,000 years later, here we are. And so the writer of Hebrews writes them to encourage them, hey, listen, I know you don't feel it, but I'm just telling you it's worth it to maintain hope even when it's dark. And I'm telling you, you have no idea. It's working. God's doing something for the generations that you can't even imagine. And here's what the Hebrew writer writes to them and writes to us, and I'm going to apply it to us, and then we'll get out of here. But he starts with this verse, and uh, this has been the most misinterpreted verse maybe in all of the scriptures I dealt with this back in December in a different context. So you can go back and listen to that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, but this thing has been so jacked up, and this sounds arrogant, but I'm going to try to help you understand the actual context of it. Hebrews 11.1, 1, and you'll see that I'm right in a second. Now, faith is confidence. I'm just kidding, but I'm absolutely serious. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we don't see. Like, this is just a basic definition of faith to get us started around this conversation where he's going, listen, guys, I just want to remind you of faith. And, and by the way, here's what faith is. Faith is you getting a job, and then for your first two weeks, you work believing and being assured of the fact that you're going to get a paycheck. It's based off of a promise from your employer. That's all faith is. It is, I have a promise, and so I'm going to continue to work. I'm going to continue to move forward, believing and being assured that they're going to come through on their promise. That's all faith is. Faith is not, if I just muster up enough of it, then it's going to come true or it's going to happen. That's actually defined as magic. Not biblical faith. Faith is always based on a promise, on the promises of God, of what God is going to do. And so he says, this is what faith is. It's confidence in what you hope for. It's assurance of what you don't see. It's what you do the first two weeks of a new job. Verse two, this, talking about faith. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then the writer of Hebrews starts to go through all of these Old Testament saints, all these prophets, all of these heroic in our minds individuals and talks about their extraordinary faith that they continued to get up every single day and they were confident that God kept his promises. People like Moses, Abraham who stepped out and didn't know where he was gonna go. 
All of the women throughout the Old Testament that with so much uncertainty decided they were going to trust, they were going to follow God. And on and on it went. People like Jacob, all of these Old Testament saints who decided we're going to be faithful and we believe that God is a promise-keeping God and we're going to keep following him no matter what. And then verse 13, skip down. All of these people, all of these heroic individuals, all of these people with great faith who believe the promises of God, all of these people were still living by faith when they died. Meaning God made a promise and they kept acting as if God was going to keep the promise and they died not seeing the fulfillment of that promise. And then it says, and they didn't receive the things promised. They only saw and welcomed them from a distance. Now, maybe you know the story. This is so powerful to me. God comes to Abraham, and Abraham's old as dirt. That's really the literal translation. Abraham is old as dirt, so is his wife, no disrespect. And God comes to them to go, I know that you guys are well along in years. You're going to have a a baby, and through that baby, God's going to build a nation, and through that nation, God's going to bless the entire world. God's going to do something for every generation and every individual and all of the planet, Abraham, through you. And then he says, Abraham, leave your home and just go and trust me to lead you. And Abraham did it. And then God comes with this promise. And so Abraham, year after year, decade after decade, continued to get up every day and believe that God had made a promise that God was going to do something through their family and their life, and it was going to bless the entire world. And Abraham kept getting up going, God, we're waiting. God, we're ready for it. Anytime now, God would be amazing. But we believe that you are a promise-keeping God, and we believe that you will come through. And Abraham died waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. And he never abandoned faith, which is so convicting to us, isn't it? And I'm not... I'm in this category. We pray on Monday and we're ready to abandon God on Friday. Where it's like, are you serious? You haven't come through? I gave, originally it was Thursday. I was praying for you to come through by Thursday. I figured God of the universe, you could do that. But I know you're busy. You got a lot of stuff going on. So I gave you an extension to Friday. I'm still praying and you haven't come through. And you haven't given any recognition that you hear me. You haven't even thrown me a bone. It doesn't seem like anything's working right. The marriage is out of control. The relationships are a mess. Financially, it hasn't gotten better. God, where are you at? I started praying on Monday. It's Friday. Like, that's kind of how we operate a little bit, right? And I'm, I'm kind of overstating it. But I don't know if I am. And yet Abraham and, and Jacob and Joshua and Moses and all these Old Testament saints, I mean, year after year, decade after decade, just kept getting up and they didn't see the evidence that God was doing anything. And yet they maintained faith anyway. And they died waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. And then verse 36, and, and all of those people that maintained faith, continued to trust God, continued to wait for the fulfillment of those promises. Some of them faced jeers. And some flogging, and some even chains and imprisonment. And they were put to death by stoning, and they were sawed in two, and they were killed by the sword. And they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and mistreated. And just quick pause here, real quick. Like, we kind of shy away from this message, but it is so real. Like, no, nobody ever preaches a sermon series that's like, hey, follow Jesus. It could end badly. But that's kind of Hebrews 11, right? And if you didn't have any context, you would look at all these people and like, where's your faith? I'm pretty sure if you're following Jesus, you don't get sawn in two. Pretty sure if you're following Jesus, 
you don't end up dying by the sword or being destitute or persecuted and mistreated. And I just want to give you this context for a second that we talked about a lot in this series that's so important because it is easy to walk through your version of being destitute or mistreated or all Christians in the West like to talk about being persecuted, even though we don't really have any context for that, and think that somehow God has abandoned you or somehow God has abandoned us. And yet the context of Scripture says that you could have some of the greatest faith on the planet and you live your entire life following and believing Jesus, and you end up destitute, persecuted, and mistreated, and God loves you, and for thousands of years, you will be heralded as one of the heroes of the faith. Not only has God not abandoned you, God was in the midst of the destitution and the persecution all along, and he loves you anyway. And the thing I get, man, is that's not an emotionally satisfying version of faith. We like to have a faith with levers to where if I can pull a lever, I'll manipulate God in doing what I want God to do. And the only problem is that we've had a generation of people leaving that version of faith because it doesn't actually exist. And then the writer of Hebrews kind of pulls back as he's talking about all of these individuals and thinking about what if they hadn't though? Like what if they hadn't maintained faith? What if they hadn't persevered? What if they had given up? I mean, how can we blame them in the midst of that kind of threat of persecution or death or all the things that they faced? What, what if they had stopped short and had not been faithful even when they didn't see God at work? And then he steps back and he writes this powerful line as he thinks about Joshua and Moses and Jacob and Abraham. The world was not worthy of them. And he maybe thought about his own fear and his own darkness and his own insecurity and surely the writer of Hebrews was going through all of his own stuff as he's writing this and he thinks about his own life and those who have gone before and just moves back on the other side of the resurrection. God's already done something and says, what if they hadn't maintained faith? I'm telling you, of this group of people, the world was not worthy of them. Can I just say this because it's so close to my heart and it's, again, I don't want to sound like hyperbole or like over the top, but it's, it's absolutely true as you study church history. There was once a version of following Jesus. There was once a version of Christianity that elicited heroic living. That these individuals that people would look at and go, we don't understand them, they're weird, we don't get their theology, and they would serve, and they were selfless, and they gave back, and they moved toward their enemies, and they, they seemed to somehow be of another world, like they were foreigners, and they were strangers, but they were working within the culture, and their major objective was, how do we love other people the way that God has loved us? How do we give our lives away? How do we be selfless? How do we not worry about us and worry about other people? And it was so shocking in counterculture and counterintuitive that it was all in inspiring and captured the attention of people around them. And then they began to huddle in groups and create movements and, and churches sprung up everywhere. And it's so amazing because the only thing that these churches had in common was that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. Nothing else really led them to have common ground. And yet they moved together in unity, fulfilling Jesus' prayer in John 17. And they began to change culture and they were slave and they were free and they were men and women and children, which is crazy in that culture. They were Jew, they were Greek, they were Samaritan, they were Gentile, they were young, they were old, 
They were tax collectors. They were zealots. And there was something about their faith and their confidence when they could not see God at work that I'm telling you, it got the world's attention. And the world wasn't worthy of them. And then he says this, instead, all of these people were commended for their faith, those that are marked in Hebrews 11 and all the names that we don't know. And yet none of them received what had been promised. They died waiting for God to fulfill it, but they believed anyway. And then he says this, verse 40, since, and this is where he like pulls back and he talks to us and he kind of gives us the bigger picture. Since God had planned something better for us, basically saying to this first century generation, I know you want God to do it now. I know you want God to come through. I know you want to see the fulfillment of the promise. That's only natural. But I'm just telling you, God's doing something bigger than your generation. God's doing something bigger than you. God's doing something bigger than your little movement. God's doing something bigger that's gonna mark the entire world. And little did they know, 2,000 years later, here we are. Here the movement is. And Jesus is saying to this generation, it's bigger than you. God's gonna do something beyond you that's gonna mark every generation, every continent for all of history. And then he says this, and here's how it's gonna happen. So that only together with us, all the generations of Christians who have gone before, who will come, who are yet to be, that only together with us would they be made perfect. And all that means is that God, who made a promise, would eventually bring it all to completion. And just real quick, I just want us to think about this stuff. This group of Old Testament saints who are willing to give up everything, they looked forward to a promise that hadn't been fulfilled. They didn't see Jesus come. They didn't get to see the fruition of this promise. And yet they looked forward. And even when they didn't see God at work, they maintained faith anyway. And here we are. And we look back. And I don't know if you know this. God already fulfilled his promise. God already did what the Old Testament prophets were waiting for for hundreds of years. He came in the form of Jesus and he lived a perfect life that nobody could live. And then he set his face toward Jerusalem and he went to the cross and he gave up everything on our behalf. And then the thing that punctuated it all and the thing that is the foundation of our faith, he walked out of a grave alive. He anchored it in history so that we could know in that moment that he validated and authenticated everything that he said that he really was the son of God, and he was ushering in a brand new kingdom. And we have the benefit of standing on the other side of a resurrected Savior who had been predicted, who fulfilled his promises. And we look back, they had to look forward, and they waited, and they hoped. And we look back, and it's already happened, and we are so ridiculously afraid. I'm talking to me. We lose hope so easily. God hasn't answered our prayer and we are so quick to check out on God because we don't understand what God is doing. And they got up every day for decades believing God and acting as if God could be trusted and just doing what anybody would do who was absolutely confident that God was with them even though God hadn't answered their prayer in a while. Listen, Christians, Christians should be the most fearless, confident but not arrogant, compassionate, individuals on the planet. We stand and we live on the other side of the promise. 
And so he says, so, so what do we do? Because we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Like, think of all the people that have gone before you. He's like, think of all the people that maintain faith and confidence in God. Again, Abraham and Joshua and Jacob and Mary and all of the Old Testament saints and prophets. Think about what they did. Think about what they endured. Think about how they continued to hope even when they could not see the light going forward. And for us, we even have more. We have people like Peter and Paul who gave up everything. We have the people of the first century and the third century. We have people in the 14th, 15th century, people like William Tyndale and all of those who sacrificed their lives, preserved and protected this ancient tech because they believed that God had risen from the, the grave and they were willing to die, willing to give up their life. We have this massive, great cloud of witnesses that has only grown, that goes before us. And in unbelievable circumstances, they continue to trust God. They continue to believe God. They continue to hold on to faith. And so the author of Hebrews says, how do you do that? How are you going to do that? How do we maintain that, that kind of faith? So he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this, this is our posture. This is what we need to do. End of verse one. Let us hide and whine and complain and pursue comfort at all costs. Abandon Jesus the moment we suffer. Put our Bible on the shelf. Hoard our resources just in case. Purchase ammunition. Blame the president. Blame teachers. You should blame your mom while you're at it. Demonize everybody on the other side. Find a church that agrees with me so I don't actually have to think. Rant on social media. Demand our rights. Um, demand our rights. Build a wall. Tax the rich. Play it safe. Protect our religious liberties at all costs because revelation is about to be ushered in. Find somebody to sue. Take back our country and pray that Jesus returns so that we don't have to suffer. Did I miss anybody? That wasn't verse one. That was a paraphrase uh, from my mentor, Andy Stanley. That's not what the verse says. Can you imagine? Just Can you imagine sometimes what the great cloud of witnesses must think when they hear us? When they hear this version of specifically American Christians. Can, can you imagine how we sound to the great cloud of witnesses who gave up everything with no certainty and no clarity? Heck, let's just forget them for a second. Can you imagine how we sound right now to the Christians in Syria, in Iraq, in Ukraine? Can, can you imagine how we Sound to, to Christian refugees and people that are dads by their bedsides and they haven't seen their daughter and they are pleading and they are praying and they are pleading and they are praying and they don't know if they'll ever see them again. Have you ever thought, do, do you have any idea how we sound to the great cloud of witnesses? Since I'm on this, let me just go a little bit harder. Can you imagine how we sound, how I sound to the great cloud of witnesses when I pray? God bless me, God help me, God help her get a date. It's getting awkwardly too long now and like we, she needs to get out of the house and God help them to get into the school and God help that to work out and God financially it's bad and God help my 401k and God bless my Bitcoin and God help us and God bless us and God help us and God bless us and God help us and God give us protection, safety and traveling mercies and God help us. Are you kidding me? 
Do you know the sacrifice that was paid for our faith? Do you know, come on, I'm talking to me, so don't feel awkward. Do you know what's gone before us? Do you know what this great cloud of witnesses has done, what they faced? And they maintained, they maintained hope anyway. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for those things. But mix in something that doesn't have to do with you. So here's what he says when you're wondering, is it worth it? Is it working? Is it worth it? Is it working? Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, here's what he says to all of those freaking out, out of control. The world's against us. It's so dark and evil. The suffering, I'm walking through the darkness. My busted up relationship, all of those things are, are maybe legit. But he turns it on us a little bit and says, let us, in the midst of all of that, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And basically, here's what he's saying, because sometimes it can feel like he changed the subject. He's like, I know that it's hard. I know that you're struggling. I know God hasn't answered your prayer. I know it feels like everybody's against you. But I want you to shift the mirror on you for a second and the fact that you are so easy, to, so willing to lose hope and so willing to, to become cynical and so willing to walk away. Why don't you just look at you for a second? Why aren't you fully with everything that's gone before you and all that God has done in history? Why aren't you fully following and all in? Why aren't you following me with all of your life? Why aren't you setting aside every distraction and every entanglement and every sin? And why don't, like all your chips on the table, why, like do you know what I've done? Why don't you fully with abandon follow me with all of your life? Why are you so easily losing hope, follower of Jesus? And what are you afraid of, really? Because this is what our faith has been founded on from the very beginning. And that is that the darker it gets, the brighter our light shines. The darker it gets, the brighter our light shines. The darker it gets, the greater the opportunity for the resurrected light of Christ to shine through us where we are not so ridiculously afraid, even when there is something to be afraid of. He says, why don't you throw off everything, the sin that entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. And you're either gonna run the race that God has for you and, and speaking corporately as a church, we're either gonna run the race that God has for us or we're gonna whine, we're gonna complain, we're gonna fear monger and we're gonna lose our mind. But have you ever thought about this? Just, because I know for some of you, like the darkness that you feel like you're walking through, it's really personal to you right now. It's a relationship, it's a financial thing, it's, it's some shame that you're carrying, it's somebody that betrayed you or hurt you. For others of us, the way that we interpret darkness, especially a lot of evangelical Christians, is kind of the darkness of culture, the darkness of the world. Everybody's against us. We got to take stuff back. And that's kind of how you interpret it. But wherever you're at and however you interpret that, just consider this thought for a second. When you start to tick off all the ways that everything is so bad, for some reason, the sovereign God of the universe chose you for this moment in this cultural generation at this time and place in your neighborhood with all of the things that you're facing and he has given you a specific race to run and a destiny to fulfill. Amen. Like why are we freaking out? Why do we think that God was like ill-informed? 
That like he didn't know what was going to happen. That this generation of Christians wouldn't be operating when they were, or that you wouldn't personally walk through what you're walking through. God is not taken by surprise. And whether you would ever choose it or not, this is something that gives me extraordinary confidence. God has chosen me in this moment, in this generation, to have an impact and to run a race. And he marked out that race before the foundation of time. And he is not confused or he is not taken by surprise by any of the surrounding elements. And I have been called to run that race well. And the only way that I'm going to do it and the only way that you're going to do it is by doing this one thing. This is the hinge point. This is the tipping point. This is the key. This is the focus. And I hate it in some ways because many of you already know the fill in the blank and you know the end of the verse. Our only way forward is to fix our eyes. And you know the answer. It's the Sunday school answer. If you're not sure, it's always Jesus. But if we can just be honest for a lot of us and to, and to speak maybe even more globally, what I love about what we do is we have influence way outside of this church beyond what, what probably you imagine with hundreds of thousands of people through radio and podcasts. And so like this is for you. I understand this is going into all kinds of spaces and places. But for a lot of us as Christians or evangelical Christians, we're kind of in a space, we're in a moment where we have fixed our eyes on security and on safety and on the mechanisms of the kingdoms of this world and who in the world we can blame and what's wrong with them. And the moment you do that, just mark it down, you will miss the race that God has for you as a church. We will miss the race that God has for us in this generation, and we will not persevere. We will not hang on to hope. We'll walk away. And so he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And I just want to ask you, for whatever you're walking through, or however you interpret kind of this cultural moment, what are, what are your eyes fixed on? Like, what are your eyes fixed on? Legit. What are your eyes fixed on? Where's your attention? You're walking through something right now, or you feel like we're walking through something as a global church. What are your eyes fixed on? Self-preservation? You? Us getting what we think we deserve? Comfort? Security? Like, imagine if we got back to what the writer of Hebrews said should be our reference point, and our reference point above everything else should be Jesus. That whatever you're walking through, whatever you're facing, whatever questions you have, however you don't understand God right now, whatever's happening in our world, your reference point is Jesus. That was the reference point of first century followers of Jesus who were facing persecution and against all of the odds in the world. They had no influence. They had nothing to leverage. And yet they continued to be faithful anyway. And the only way they were able to do it is because their eyes were fixed on Jesus. Not Rome, not their culture, not Samaritans and tax collectors, not all the oppression that they were under, not where they wanted to see things go in Jerusalem. They had their eyes fixed on Jesus. Can you imagine if every single follower of Jesus did that for like a month in our country? It would change the West if we got up every day and got our eyes off of everything else and threw off everything else that hindered and all of the sin that entangles us and goes, I'm just going to get up today and I'm just going to ask, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? 
Previously, I hated you and I created enemies out of us. And then I remembered that I serve a savior that gave up his life on a cross. So I have no reason to hate you. You're made in the image of God. You're actually my brother or my sister. So I'm going to ask the question of you, of that party, of culture, of the neighbor down the street that I don't really like. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? I'm walking through darkness where I don't know what God's doing. I would never choose this. This is not what I wanted financially or relationally. And then I remember I serve a God that stared down Jerusalem and went to a cross and died on that cross without flinching and then walked out of a grave alive. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? I remembered I serve a resurrected Savior. Can you imagine if we did that for like four weeks? Just set the bar low. Just for four weeks, if we got our eyes off of everything else that we are freaking out about, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? I'm not sure if for a lot of our churches we'd have anything left to talk about. Come on, I'm, I'm, you should study church history. That kind of living changed the world once. And so he said, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith is who you need to fix your eyes on. And then he, he just continues to get in our face. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame. And just real quick, he's making a point. The issue with Roman crucifixion was not just the pain, it was the shame. The Romans perfected the art of torture that would also be shameful and that would drag execution out. And Jesus grew up watching rotting bodies on Roman crosses. He smelled the smells. He heard the sounds. He had the cries and the screams echo in his ear. He had been there. He had seen it. He was not naive. He knew what it would look like. He knew how it would end. And he went into Jerusalem and he knew what was going to happen. And he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross covered in blood and other people's saliva. And he died only to be resurrected again. And so he says to all of us, your Savior, who your eyes should be fixed on, for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. And then he asks you to follow him. What are you afraid of? And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so he says, verse three, consider. All it means is fix your eyes on him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart so that you won't lose hope and decide it's not working and it's not worth it. So let me end this way. I just want to talk to two different groups. I first want to talk to anybody who's 45 plus, radio, watching, listening, in the room, 45 plus, and specifically if you're not a Jesus follower, you don't have to pay attention to any of this. You can just listen and then point your finger. But if you're 45 plus, and I'm going to use a, like a term that's just been so warped and honestly there's so much embarrassment associated with it but 45 plus evangelical christian i'm just going to talk to you for just a second for many of you this maybe not doesn't apply to you so if it doesn't don't get mad you have grown weary and you've lost heart and you fixed your eyes on everything but jesus you have fixed your eyes on your own comfort on your own security on your own aversion to suffering and how you can make it easier for you. You have fixed your eyes on politics and leaders 
and religious liberties and rights and all of the things that you think that you need to survive in the darkness of the world and you have fixed your eyes on everything but Jesus. And if somebody were to look at your life, they would look at you and go, why are you so ridiculously terrified about everything? And I just wanna say to you in love, knock it off. Knock it off for this reason. You, I don't know if you ever thought about it. You are discipling another generation of Christians. You are discipling another generation of Christians and they are taking their cue from you about the brand of our Christianity and what it means to actually follow Jesus. And if they were to look at some of you, here's what they would conclude. I need to avoid suffering at all costs. And the moment I do, I'm gonna start wondering what's up with God. And I'm going to walk away from you know, anything that would be insecure or anything that would infringe on my comfort. And it's all about who the president is and politics and who's the leader and my religious rights. And I need to fight for this. And if it doesn't happen, everybody's gonna get the mark of the beast. And it's almost the end of the world and everything's out of control. And apparently we're the first group of people who've ever suffered in the world. And I am so afraid and I gotta take back and we've gotta fight and we gotta do what we can and we've gotta be warriors for God. And you look ridiculous. And they're taking their cue from you about what our faith looks like. I just want to tell you, some of those things matter, but they do not matter as much as this one thing that the church needs to get back to that the Hebrew writer talked about. Nothing matters more than faith. That no matter what is going on in any culture or in your life or what you're experiencing, it is confidence that God will keep his promises and nothing will thwart the plans of God. And no matter how dark it is or how many people you think are against you or how much uncertainty or God hasn't answered your prayer or you can't connect the dots, I just want to give you a global picture. God's fine. He's doing his thing. He's been doing it from the beginning. He did it under Nero in Rome. They couldn't even vote. God changed the world. He is not looking for you to pull the mechanisms of the kingdoms of this world. There is a bigger kingdom. King Jesus is on his throne. And if you would fix your eyes on him, and if you would do what he does, which sometimes feels un-American, I'm just going to lay down my life for you. And when you lay down your life for people who are not like you, but you recognize they are made in the image of God, history tells us, the gospel tells us, the New Testament story tells us that has the power to change the world. And that's what you should be discipling another generation in. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's Pilate talking to Jesus, saying what, asking the question, what is truth? And then Jesus answers, game over. You're going to be crucified. The movement's over. It's all done. Turn out the lights. And 2,000 years later, the only reason you even know the name Pilate is because he is the footnote to the story of a Jewish carpenter who changed the world. Because first century followers of Jesus understood this, they got this, they embraced it, they handed it off to the baton to the next generation. You have every reason to walk through darkness and maintain hope, and you need to model for the next generation. And you should think about this every time you talk, every time you spew stuff on social media, every time you try to hijack Jesus and unite him to the kingdoms of this world, that what we need to, need to disciple the next generation in his model is that God is in control. And since I'm already going hard, the last two years, the global church has an extraordinary opportunity to be faithful and to be fearless and to be confident and to be humble and to love well. Because the darker it gets, the brighter our light shines. And I think as a global church, we failed miserably. 
If you're 20s and 30s, let me just say this to you, and I'll, I'll try to be done. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't fix your eyes on the mechanisms of this world. Don't hijack our faith. Don't look to the previous generation or even to me. Don't look to social media. Don't look to politics. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And I'm just telling you, I'm not overstating this. Once upon a time, there was a group of Jesus followers around your age with far less than what you have in this moment, I guarantee you. And they decided that they would live and behave differently and that would actually be the hallmark of their faith and they changed the world. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Church, center point, this community, those around Central Florida that listen to this regularly, we have an incredible opportunity in front of us. Do not grow weary and do not lose heart. Do not allow your faith in Jesus and confidence in Jesus to be hijacked by lesser things and lesser kings. Can you imagine if it was said of us that there was a generation, there was a group of people, there were some churches, that it was said of us that the world was not worthy of them? And that doesn't matter how dark it is, how much suffering, who wins elections, how bad it is for you, the fact that they walked out on you, all of those things are legit. All of that comes down to one thing, you running, us running the race that God has marked out for us, and that begins the moment we are not so ridiculously afraid. To where we put our hope and confidence in God, that God keeps his promises because he already showed us that, that God is for us because anybody that dies for you is for you, and that God is for every single individual that we are eyeball to eyeball with. And can you imagine one day if people looked at us, come on, looked at our church, let me make this personally, and they're like, I don't understand those people. They got weird theology. They do weird stuff. I don't understand why they give their money away. There's some weird things about what they do and what they believe, and I just don't understand any of it. But I'm just telling you, those people are the most humble, confident, selfless, secure, hope-filled individuals in any circumstance, no matter how dark it gets. And if you have those individuals in your neighborhood, or if your daughter can marry one, or if you can hire them, you should, because there is something about the followers of Jesus that is different than the rest of the culture. Even if they don't agree with you, they will lay down their life for you. Can you imagine if we just decided that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and we would decide to be a generation of Christians to whom it was said the world was not worthy of you? The world wasn't worthy of the way that you live, the way that you respond, the way that you interact. And I'm just going to say this and I'm going to be done. This is what we've lost sight of. The version of Christianity that Jesus introduced, it is actually created for these moments. It should thrive in darkness. It should stand up in the midst of uncertainty. It should continue to be a bright light when everybody else is freaking out because we serve a resurrected Savior. We don't have anything to be afraid of. So as we close, I want to encourage you on two things, because for some of you, I think the place that you need to get back to is fixing your eyes on Jesus. So I'd encourage you to do this thing, is to read through the book of John over the next couple of weeks, couple months, and just without the lens of all the stuff that gets in the way of what you grew up with or what they said or your politics or all the stuff that just perverts, it's just, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus respond? For many of us, we need to get back to that central idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus. If you don't read, get Morgan Freeman to read it to you. He's amazing. Like whatever you need to do. But Book of John, over the next few weeks, this summer, I'm gonna spend some weeks just 
teaching through um, this book and some of the major themes of it that I think for some of us will be so helpful, so enlightening, hopefully so inspiring. But for some of you, that's where you need to start. And so wherever you are, would you stand with me? I want to pray with you as our team comes to end with this final song and close out this series. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you're doing in this moment. And Lord, I pray that you would take my words and Lord, what you want to do in terms of the spirit of God and that you would move to anchor those in the hearts of people where it's relevant, where it's needed. I pray that you would do what you do, which is to make this really extremely personal to wherever we're at right now in life. And Lord, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know how this hits people. For some, it's a, it's a massive confirmation. For other people, it kind of ticks them off a little bit. For others, it's really uncomfortable. For some, it's convicting. So I just, just do your thing. And Lord, I pray that the, the thing that is not lost is the central message that the writer of Hebrews wanted to get across to all of us. And it is as relevant today as it's ever been, that we would lay off everything and that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. You're capable, you're able, you're a promise-keeping God, you are a king that is above every king. I pray that we, for some of us, would begin to shift our faith to the only object and person who is worthy of our faith and confidence. And that's you. And help us as a church. I want to pray for Centerpoint and all the expressions of Centerpoint in different places that we would, that we would live differently, that we would take this mantle and this baton and that we would change our community, not by leveraging the mechanisms of this world, but by ushering in your kingdom by doing for people that are nothing like us and by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And we pray for this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.